welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac, and we are recording for you on a Thursday evening this time. Um, I am here today with Katrina. Say hi, Katrina. Hi. In case you're wondering, this is your podcast. All you hypochondriacs out there who think you have a tumor every time you have a headache, a little sniffle, a slight twinge, or whatever, we understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out WebMD more than our fair share of the times. We're here to talk about some weird diseases, strange illnesses, syndromes, disorders, cures, diagnosis, all that good stuff. Uh, Before we get started, though, we do need to talk about a few little disclaimers. First and foremost, we're not doctors or medical professionals of any kind. Please, please, please do not take anything we say on the show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat you, diagnose you, or fix your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see your doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and future. Tonight's episode is going to be a very interesting one for us. Um, We're going to talk about depression, and this can be a very um, sensitive topic for a lot of people because a very large portion of the population suffers from depression. Am I right, Katrina? Yeah, I've struggled with depression most of my life. So yeah. What about you? Um, I think everyone. I mean, if you say you've never suffered from depression, I think that you're lying. Normal people, right? Yeah, no, I mean, a, a majority of the women that I have talked to have all suffered from some form of depression, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it tends to come and go. And I think it can be hormonal. I think it can be chemical. I think it can be caused by a number of factors. I think it can be caused by your environment, by events that happen in your life. It's just such a huge, huge part of our society today that I think you cannot go very far without running into someone who's either currently suffering from or has suffered from depression. I'm going to kind of go over some statistics first before we really jump into some individualized cures and maybe some stories about depression. But I found some information on healthline.com about depression. Sadness and grief are, as we know, normal human emotions. We all have them and they usually go away within a few days. But major depression or major depressive disorder is something a little bit more than that. These are diagnosable conditions that are classified as mood disorders, and they can bring about long-lasting symptoms like overwhelming sadness, low energy, loss of appetite, and a lack of interest in things that used to bring pleasure. Um, This is a really scary thing for a lot of people because you can't necessarily predict when it's going to come on, and if you don't treat it, it can lead to some pretty serious health complications that could potentially put your life at risk and and maybe even make you suicidal. It's a pretty scary thing to, when you think about how it could impact you. Fortunately, though, there are, seem to be some really effective treatments out there today um, and some experimental ones um, as well. And we're going to kind of talk about a few of those today on the show. But many people find relief from things like medication, diet, and exercise. They find that those things, um, when used together, can be pretty damn effective. But the types of depression. Let's talk about what the specific types of depression are. Um, major depressive disorder is the start of this. So it's estimated that about 16.2 million adults in the U.S. or 6.7% of American adults have had at least one major depressive episode in a given year. It's like one bout with depression. That's a lot of people. It's not quite I'm 10%, not but so. that's a lot of people. 
And that's like, you know, maybe not all at the same time, but I think that at some point in our lives, most of us do struggle with that. That can be a single bout of depression or a lot of people have reoccurring episodes, unfortunately. Um, Persistent depressive disorder or I don't even know how to say this. Dysmia. How's it spelled? D-Y-S-T-H-M-I-A. Dysthymia. So persistent depressive disorder is a chronic low-level depression that is lower in severity than major depression, but can last mm-hmm. two years or longer. It can cause ongoing feelings of deep sadness, hopelessness, and other conditions like low energy, indecision, etc. Um, this occurs in about 1.5% of U.S. adults in a given year, and it's more prevalent in women than men. Yeah. But... Half of all cases are considered serious when it comes to that persistent depressive disorder. Now, this next one has gotten a lot of uh, coverage in the news lately because some major names suffer from this, but bipolar disorder is also a type of depression. It's a manic depressive disorder that affects about 2.8% of the U.S. population in a given year. It can occur equally in men and women, and 83% of those cases are considered severe. So it's something that really can take hold of people and just ruin lives, if not like effectively managed. But this causes the development of manic or energized mood episodes. Sometimes it can be preceded or followed by depression. But the presence of these episodes is what determines which type of bipolar disorder you can be diagnosed with, which is pretty scary. Um, I feel like that that one, I mean... It's pretty scary, and it's a, it's a even you know I've met people who it's affected their families where their parents have taken off and uh, and one of their manic episodes. Um, it's pretty scary. Absolutely, um, to have to experience that. It, they say that twenty five percent of patients who are admitted to a hospital due to depression are diagnosed with psychotic depression. And 10 to 15% of U.S. women develop major postpartum depression. So that is a huge factor as well. But the six most common types of depression in America, number one is major depressive disorder. Number two is persistent depressive disorder. Number three is that bipolar disorder we just talked about. Four is seasonal depression. Five is postpartum depression. And six is psychotic depression. So like that, it runs the gamut of all kinds of different types of depression, but you could potentially have seasonal depression. I think that is a little bit more common up where you're at in the Pacific Northwest, um, more impacted by seasonal patterns, and your mood can be affected by seasonal changes. Up to 5% of the U.S. population in a given year suffers from this, evidently. And it's triggered by the onset of autumn and lasts usually throughout the winter. It is very rare for this to happen in the summer or the spring, which isn't that such an interesting phenomena? Yeah, I've even had my doctor say, well, you need to take vitamin D to kind of combat that. Yeah, I feel like I suffered from that when I lived up in the Pacific Northwest. It's just, I felt just every winter just kind of bummed out and I would gain weight and not be able to lose it until the summer. And I just didn't want to do anything. I didn't have any energy. Um, yeah, for the most part, with there's that, a high suicide rate since in the Seattle area. Oh yeah. Um, for the most part, geography and distance from the equator are like huge factors in this particular disorder and women represent four out of five people with this condition. 
So it seems as though men aren't quite as impacted as strongly as women are with that. Um, another one that women tend to suffer from in in huge numbers is that postpartum depression that we kind of touched on earlier. Well, I kind of wonder how much of the numbers are kind of skewed because men have a tendency to be less likely to seek help. And I, and, and I that is probably that a factor. Books. Yeah, that is probably a huge factor, but I think postpartum depression is wholly female. <laughs> I don't well, think no, men are going to have I'm that talking, postpartum. I'm talking about other forms of depression. Yeah, that's true. They tend to either ignore it or put it off or like just they don't want to address it. They don't want to see a doctor for it. But or they don't know sometimes they're not aware that what they're experiencing is depression. They can't, you know, identify what it is. That is so true. Um jumping back into that postpartum depression though, as many as 80% of new mothers experience that. Isn't that insane? Yes, it is. I experienced that after I had Bella and it was it was pretty scary and I didn't know what it was. I wasn't able to identify it. I was really young. But not with and your I other three? Not like I did with her. I I was I was more capable of knowing what it was at that point, you know. Um but with Bella it was really prevalent and I remember just feeling like these like just depressed, like all the time, just feeling like no motivation. And I'm, and, uh, like all these thoughts that I'd never had before. And, um, I didn't know what was going on. And I talked to the doctor about it and they're like, Oh, it's postpartum depression. Just take some medication. Yeah. That's scary. It can be mood swings, sadness, fatigue, Um, lack of motivation, just some really um, intense feelings for people that are already just stressed out because they're dealing with a new baby. But they typically Mm -hmm. say it passes in a week or two. Was that your experience? Did it pass in a week or two? Uh, No, it it happened over a course of um, probably a couple of months for me. Um, And I tried a couple different um, medications Actually, it was. It had to have been more than a couple months. It probably was more cl- closer to six months um, because I tried a couple different medications, and they ask you to get it into your system for about thirty days. Yeah. Well, I can imagine it's probably varies this particular form of depression from person to person, but they mm-hmm. say that it's usually caused by hormonal changes, um, lack of sleep, yeah. and the pressures of taking care of a new baby. Obviously, we understand that that is a major, major thing. But um, additional symptoms from this can include withdrawal, lack of appetite, a negative train of thought. And about 10 to 15% of U.S. women have a depressive episode within three months of childbirth. So one, five new mothers experience minor depressive episodes and as many as 10% of new fathers can also experience this condition, which is interesting. I wonder, it's obviously not hormonal for the, for the dads, but I wonder what it is that causes it for the men. It could be lack of sleep or like, uh, you know, your, your sleep is constantly interrupted by a crying baby and, and. The thing is, is women produce certain hormones after they have a baby that help them with that sleep deprivation, whereas men don't have that. It could easily have a lot to do with just not getting enough sleep. It's interesting. There's a little map here which shows the highest and lowest incidence of mothers displaying postpartum depression. And the lowest incidences of it are in Minnesota, Illinois, Georgia, 
Colorado, and Oregon. The highest incidences of postpartum depression are in New Mexico, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Missouri. Psychotic depression, that's one of the other um, types of depression that was mentioned earlier. And this one gets a little bit more intense than some of the other kinds. Hallucinations, delusions, paranoia. It's a major disorder um, with some pretty psychotic features. And they say about 25% of the patients who are admitted to a hospital due to depression actually have psychotic depression. That's so sad. And that one in 13 people worldwide will experience some kind of a psychotic episode before the age of 70. That Isn't will, that crazy? Th- that would be so scary. I mean, I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to hallucinate. You know, some of the, some of the stories I've heard about people having hallucinations, that's some scary shit. Like, yeah. I wouldn't want to experience that. That would be really scary for any person yeah just start seeing things oh Oh, absolutely the national institute of mental health estimates that 16.2 million u.s adults had at least one major depressive episode in 2016 that's Mm. about 6.7 percent of the u.s population a major depressive episode and guess what age group it's most common in teenagers 18 to 25 and uh in individuals belonging to two or more races so biracial Folks tend to be more um, prone to episodes as well. And women, twice as likely as men, which may have something to do with what you spoke on, which you kind of touched on earlier about men not reporting it as much as women. Very, very interesting. They say about 30 million people worldwide suffer from depression at any given time, and it's the world's leading cause of disability. So It really is a thing. Does it talk on anxiety too? Um, no, I I don't think they really get into that as well. Um, just cause that's such a major like portion of it as well. But I think some people, and this, you kind of touched on a little bit about this earlier. Some people don't really understand what it is that they're dealing with. Yeah. They start to experience these intense feelings and are, they don't know what the hell is going on. They don't understand that it's depression mm-hmm. or that it's like some sort of a mental illness that they need help with. They just think, okay, I, I'll get over it. I'll press, push through and, and it'll go away. But these feelings well, and I of, think there's shame that kind of con- comes with that that depression because you're like, why can't I pull myself out of this? Or if you try to talk to some people and they say, well, well just do this or just do that and you'll feel better. But it's more than just that. Yeah, it's there's not going such on an easy in your body. People can suffer from extreme irritability over like seemingly minor things, anxiety, restlessness, trouble with anger management, loss of interest in activities, including sex fixation on the past or other things that have gone wrong, and then ultimately thoughts of death or suicide can really um, be triggered by an episode of this. Um, mm. Physical symptoms can include insomnia, oversleeping, debilitating fatigue, increased or decreased appetite, weight gain or loss, difficulty concentrating or making decisions, and unexplained aches and pains in your body. So that sounds about right. In children, I think they're impacted just slightly different. Um, it can cause low self-esteem and guilt, poor concentration, and frequent absence from school. And I think that's a tough one as well because a lot of times people will not they'll see like this memory loss and sleep problems and withdrawal and not know that it can be an issue that's related to depression. And the same thing with older mm-hmm. adults. Memory loss, sleep problems, withdrawal, those can be signs of Alzheimer's, early signs of Alzheimer's disease um, that depression is a huge, huge side effect of. So Mm -hmm. it's really, really important that if you think someone is 
going to harm themselves or if they've got this depression to the point where it's a, a serious thing where you think they could potentially hurt themselves or someone else, you need to call 911. I had other... to do that a, a, a couple times as a teenager. Um, I've, I definitely had to experience that. It, it is scary. Um, it is way better to be safe than sorry. <laughs> I had one friend, and I'll tell you, I'll ne- I never regret standing up and doing the right thing in these situations. You you won't regret saving a person's life, um, but you will regret if you don't call. Yeah, um, I had absolutely. a friend who... Um, told me she's like I just took a whole bunch of aspirin and then hung up on me and I was like oh hot dog so I called the police um they went to her house they had to pump her stomach it was and you know at first she was mad at me because you know I called Who cares? But eventually she probably she, saved her life I did save her life because she took a whole entire bottle of aspirin and they had to pump her stomach and everything but um yeah she thanked me years later, you know, but she was pretty mad at me at first. Well, the biggest thing, number one, do not be afraid to call for help. The second thing, stay with that person until help arrives. Do not leave them to their own devices unless you Mm -hmm. feel like maybe your own safety is at risk. Like that, if you feel like you could be seriously injured or, or hurt badly, you can leave. But Stay with that person if you're not in danger. Remove any yep. guns, knives, medication, or other things you think might cause harm. Get that away from mm-hmm. them. Don't leave yep. them with that stuff. And listen to them. Don't judge them. Don't argue. Don't threaten them. And don't yell at them. You yeah, know, they're dealing with just a crisis, and you have to be calm. If you yeah. know someone who's considering suicide that has to do with their depression or anything else, We're going to put the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline hotline phone number up on our web page, up on the show notes. Call. Yes. Absolutely call. Don't second guess. Don't say, oh, they'll be fine in the morning. Call. It's always better to be safe than sorry. It's never worth it. We um, might, you know, we've had people we know that have. I've experienced people who have committed suicide and how it's impacted family members. It's, it's a horrible thing to have to it go through and experience. Awful. Now there so, are some, um, some causes and risk factors for depression, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And it's important that if you have any of these factors in your history or in your health charts, that you need to be aware of what's going on with your body and get help. If you start to feel like something's going on, but there is no yep. single cause of depression. Unfortunately, it's not like they can pinpoint it to one thing, but brain chemistry, hormones, genetics, all play a role in that. Um, other risk factors for depression can include low self-esteem, anxiety disorder, borderline depression, personality disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder from, you know, witnessing traumatic events, physical or sexual abuse, chronic diseases like diabetes, multiple sclerosis or cancer, alcohol or drug use disorders, certain prescription medications can actually cause depression and increase your risk factor. Um, Family history of depression and age, gender, race, and geography play a huge part in that. So just be aware of what's going on with yourself and your family and your friends and know that, you know, if people are suffering from some of these things or have these risk factors in their health history that you got to be aware. Um, Calling a doctor is the biggest thing. Like if something just doesn't feel right to you, make an appointment. 
I mean, it's, it's not going to hurt you. Um, if symptoms, especially if symptoms last more than two weeks and you got to report all your symptoms, it's really, really important. A physical exam and a blood test can help rule out health problems that could be similar or could be contributing to your depression. So don't take it personally if they suggest that you get that. A diagnosis for depression usually requires that symptoms occur for about two weeks or more. Um, and that's why I said earlier, if it lasts more than two weeks, make sure you're getting help. The diagnosis must also include four other changes in the way we function. So some of these include disruption of sleep or eating, lack of energy or concentration, problems with self-image, and thoughts of suicide. So typically it wouldn't just be, hey, I feel sad. It would be a combination of different factors in order for them to give you an official depression diagnosis. Fortunately, treatment of depression is something that is successful for many people. Um, however, less than 50% of people suffering from depression actually receive treatment. So only half the people with it seek out treatment. Um, and the most That's common... I know, right? The most common method for treating it is... Medication and counseling, which is something that a lot of people balk at because they don't want to go talk about their problems with someone, but it can actually be a really effective tool in treating depression. I can tell you from first firsthand, I see a therapist once a week and um, the difference between when I was and when I wasn't, it's it makes a huge difference because oh, yeah. talking through those things and then they can give you tools and they can... Once you get those thoughts out that you're having, they kind of like make it like it's not, it's, you're not alone. Like you're not the only person because you have a tendency to isolate yourself yeah. and you're not alone in it. And so they, it's, it's definitely very effective and very helpful. But they say that 40 to 60% of people who take antidepressants notice improved symptoms after eight, six or eight weeks. Right. So that can be pretty major. So it's not just a couple people that are experiencing relief with this. It's a pretty big portion of the people that are experiencing depression. But the right. biggest and most effective way to treat it is with a combination of antidepressants and counseling. So mm-hmm. don't mess around. Combine If you have severe or moderate depression, go see a doctor. Get that diagnosis and get some help. According to a 2013 study, therapy had a lower rate of relapse at the one to two year follow-up. So people that are seeking out that therapy have lower rates of depressive relapses, mm-hmm. which is awesome. If treatments don't work, there is a number of different things that doctors can do. And we're actually going to have a little bit of a conversation in a bit about some of the alternative treatments for depression because there are a small portion, if not a moderate portion of the population that does not um, find regular treatment with medication and therapy effective for treating depression. Um, I know the people that have that seasonal depression can sometimes improve on their own with um, a change in climate or light therapy rather than medication, which is great. Um, and Katrina is going to touch on this one later, but the electroconvulsive therapy is a treatment that is gaining some more popularity out there. We're going to touch on that in a bit. Um, complications from depression, prolonged and chronic depression can really have a devastating impact on emotional and physical health. If you do not get treatment for your depression, suicide can be a huge factor for those folks. Other complications can include alcohol and drug use disorders, 
headaches, chronic aches and pains, phobias, panic disorders, anxiety attack, trouble with school or work, family relationship problems, social isolation, excess weight or obesity due to eating disorders, which raises the risk for heart disease and type 2 diabetes, self-mutilation and attempted suicide or suicide are things that can happen if you don't seek treatment and you continue to have those severe symptoms. So it's really, really important. Get that treatment. Get help if you can. Katrina, can you touch on, I just was talking about that alternative treatment. Why don't you tell the listeners what that is and give them a little bit more information on that? Okay. Um, Electroconvulsive therapy therapy is also known as ECT, and it's a procedure done under general anesthesia in which they send small electric currents through your brain, intentionally triggering a seizure. Wow. Yes. Um, ECT seems to cause changes in brain chemistry that can quickly reverse symptoms of certain mental health conditions. So uh, in my uh, therapy class in the reading, they, they talked about how people who were extremely suicidal um, have severe depression, uh, they uh, treatment resistant depression. So none of the treatments that they're using um, are working severe mania, you know, for bipolar disorders, Mm -hmm. Um, catatonia. I don't know if you know if that, what that is, but it's characterized by lack of movement, fast or strange movements, lack of speech and other symptoms. It's associated with schizophrenia. And when you, when you become catatonic, just space it out. Agitation and aggression in people with dementia. So people who um, have Alzheimer's and stuff like that, when they get like really agitated, um, they will use this treatment to help them. And it's a quick treatment. So it, uh, it, it's happens very quickly. So right after the treatment is when they start to feel relief. That's awesome. They also use it during pregnancy when medications can't be taken because they might harm the developing fetus. Wow. So obviously it's safe to a safe treatment during pregnancy. They also use it in older adults who can't tolerate drug drug side effects. Also in people who prefer ECT treatments over taking medications. Yeah, there are and people when, that don't want to take a medication. They want a quick treatment that's not going to keep a drug in their system for weeks <laughs> and days or months. Yeah, correct. That's true. There are some risks and some side effects that come with it. Um, just like any other medication or drug or treatment, there there are always side effects that are a possibility. Um, confusion, memory loss, physical side effects uh, like nausea, headache, jaw pain, or muscle pain. Because well, you're basically getting Medical. a brain shock. Like it's, you might have well, some, yeah. pretty, some pretty um, crazy side effects. When I heard about this in my therapy class, I was actually really shocked by it. Like, I was like, they actually still do this because, you know, if you think about it's like, like is, uh, it, is this electroshock movies, therapy? Is this basically uh, electroshock therapy? Well, it's called electroconvulsive therapy, but they're sending electrical currents into your brain and causing you to have a seizure. I basically think this has been around for a lot of years under different, right? Possibly under different. I names. thought that this was not like a thing anymore, but apparently it is. 
Well, if it's effective for some people, then I can see why they're still using it, but maybe they've modified it in some ways. So it's less intense. I think it used to be super, super crazy intense, like almost like being in an electric chair. They must have it more pinpointed to trigger points in your brain, right? They put you under general anesthesia. So I think that you're actually put out during it when they do it. So you don't feel it. Wow. So I watched a video on it and they they put um, the patient out. They're not aware and they don't remember any of it. Right. But this is considered... Number one, a, a treatment for more severe cases, right, that are not responsive to traditional medications and therapy, correct? Correct. When there isn't any other options, you know, as far and in extreme and very extreme cases, people who are consistently suicidal, uh, agitated patients, when you, when there nothing else is working, it's more kind of a last resort kind of thing. Yeah. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Anything else on that? Uh, during the procedure, a blood pressure. They put a blood pressure cuff around your ankle. They okay. They place it around one ankle. Stops the muscle relaxant medication from entering your foot and affecting the muscles there. When the procedure begins, your doctor can monitor seizure activity by watching for movement in that foot. Oh my God! How crazy is that? The mon the. They have monitors to check your brain, heart, blood pressure, and oxygen use. You may be given oxygen through an oxygen mask, and you may also be given a mouth guard to help protect your teeth and tongue from injury. Right, because I'm sure you like once you get shocked, some people probably bite down really hard. Well, yeah, they're they're inducing a seizure, and when you ha- I don't know if you know anything about seizures, but yeah, you bite. You can bite on your tongue. A lot of things can happen with a seizure, so you have to be like held down that's crazy um well they give you an anesthetic so your muscles are relaxed so you're not going to be moving and you won't remember it right this will just be something that they treat you with and when you wake up you'll be like fixed theoretically right and the seizure uh, lasts about 60 seconds wow that's crazy and they do it once or they do it a bunch of times um, it's a series of treatments. Uh, it happened. They says ECT treatments are generally given two to three times weekly for three to four weeks for a total of six to twelve treatments. Wow. Some doctors use a newer technique called right unilateral ultra brief pulse electroconvulsive therapy that's done daily on weekdays. So shocking your brain. That's a thing. It's still a thing. <laughs> Many so the results are many people begin to notice an improvement in their symptoms after about six treatments with electroconvulsive therapy. Full improvement may take longer. Wow. Though ECT may not work for everyone, response to antidepressant medications in comparison can take several weeks or more. It's crazy to me that this has been around for so long and that when I think about the treatments as well that they used to give people with severe depression lobotomies as well. That used to be a treatment option. Just scary, right? Cut the stem of their brain and turn them into like this catatonic, like zombie. I also read in this, that time article that you sent me that they, in in history, they thought that women with depression were witches. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) for fuck's sake, what? This is insane. It's insane. 
Yeah. Here, you're depressed. Let me kill you. So basically, I think this has really created a society in general where we hide our emotions. We hide our feelings. We hide the things that are wrong with us because we don't want to, number one, get killed. And number two, have people judge us. And number three, be hospitalized. They would also, back in the day, with women, women that had depression would be sent to insane asylums. You'll be hospitalized and kept there, institutionalized for depression, even if it was a minor form of depression. So, I mean, this is scary mental health history in the United States. We have, do not have a strong history of rational, humane treatment of people with things as simple as depression. Well, and I think it's only that, but like I said before, there's shame that comes with it because you feel like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I make myself feel better? Why am I feeling this way? And you can become very isolated in that and thinking that you're the only one and you feel really alone. Everybody else is so happy. (laughs) Why can't I be happy? That's why it's important to have a good support system. Oh, absolutely. Another interesting kind of alternative treatment that I found for depression was something called ketamine. And it's interesting that this popped up in this for me because I, I actually listened to a podcast, I don't know, it was about a year ago, about a woman who died from using ketamine. But some people think it's the future of depression treatment. But this article um, is very interesting. It's, I found it on WebMD.com, and it's called Ketamine, the Future of Depression Treatment. Um, and this mm-hmm. article was actually published in September 2014, but it talks a little bit about depression and how people are actually using ketamine as a, a treatment for it. But it says that every year about 13 to 14 million Americans have major depression. That's a lot of people. That's a ton of people. Yeah. And for those that seek treatment, 30 to 40% will not get better or fully recovered with standard antidepressants, which is scary. I mean, it's still, there's a large number that it is getting better with standard antidepressants, but 30 to 40% is a very large number. I can honestly tell you, I've tried three or four different antidepressants and none of them have worked for me. Well, maybe ketamine is an option, but um, <laughs> these folks that cannot get treatment that is effective with regular antidepressants can have a greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse, hospitalization, and possibly suicide attempts. But... The anesthetic drug ketamine is now showing up in, a, in studies that is giving people kind of a new hope for treatment. This particular drug has a reputation as an illicit party drug. It has hallucinogenic effects if used what? improperly, right? But there are okay. a handful of clinics around the country now who are using it as a treatment, um, using infusions to help treat depression. So it's been used in emergency rooms as well for curbing suicidal thoughts and making it, this makes it a potential lifesaver for people, which is interesting. They say that the benefits are pretty impressive so far and the data seems to be pretty strong. So do they give it to them in a lower dose and they don't have a loose Yes. Yes, okay. absolutely. So if it's used in larger doses, it can cause hallucin- uh, hallucinations. But ketamine acts pretty quickly, often within hours or less. And professionals who give it to patients at therapeutic doses say it's mild with very brief side effects in most people. So 
in the higher dosages, hallucinations, party drug, crazy, 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 but in sort of therapeutic smaller doses, it can be very, very mild. They haven't really studied it for long-term safety and effectiveness, and the FDA hasn't approved it to treat depression. But these studies are really showing that it could be pretty promising. It's not uncommon for doctors to go off-label using drugs for purposes other than what they're approved for, and that's kind of what they've done with ketamine, um, because they're convinced that it can help depress patients. This is not a miracle drug, they say, but it does it does work differently than commonly used depressants like Prozac, Zoloft, and Effexor. So people who aren't helped by standard treatments often respond to the ketamine when other medications are not effective, which is awesome. They're like, sweet, let's go hallucinate. Right? <laughs> but they supposedly help, the ketamine helps people feel better, faster. That's why it's so promising. And I actually heard that people um, can... You can get it either in an infusion, like they're putting it in, like, um, you know, like they would give you an IV in the hospital. An IV? Yeah. Or they have it, like, as a nasal spray. But the fact that it, it has such a rapid response in the system is, I think, why it has become so popular. Because it can dramatically reduce suicidal thoughts in a very, very short period of time. And can last a few days or weeks. And that window of relief can be pretty critical when it comes to people who are having suicidal thoughts. And then they can use that time where they sort of put all those thoughts aside with the use of the ketamine to get them hooked up with resources, medications, psychotherapy, and other things that are really going to help them make a full recovery. So I don't think it's a long-term cure for the overall problems with depression, but they say that it can be very effective for short-term um, problem-solving when people have severe depression or anxiety. Right. This, this The Time article says that uh, ketamine's effects are temporary and that depression reliability creeps back, so people need infusions every few weeks or more to keep their symptoms at bay. Yeah. And that is... And that it's also really costly. Yeah, it can be. And the treatment usually consists of infusions or treatments over the period of multiple days. Each one lasts about 45 minutes. Side effects can include confusion, lucid daydreaming, fuzzy vision, etc. But they clear up pretty quickly, people say. Um, but patients have to be watched closely and must have prearranged trans- transportation home and they can't drive or use heavy machinery for 24 hours because there is the potential for hallucination. Oh my gosh. But about three quarters of the patients from age 15 to 55 seem to be benefiting from ketamine treatment. Older patients have a lower response rate, they say, though. Um, initial uh, six infusions cost about $3,800, which you were saying earlier, it can be expensive. Um, and then patients can return as they need for a single booster shot of the ketamine, which costs about 600 bucks. That seems pricey when you consider the cost of like Zoloft or Effexor. Um, and insurance typically doesn't cover the cost of this, which is, can be um, a real bummer for people that want to use it. Um, but the clinic mainly uses nasal sprays which can be a lot more effective, although it is still pretty expensive. So ketamine, an alternative treatment, um, to add to the, the list of things as well. And I actually have one last article that I want to share about depression because this is also an experimental treatment that is gaining a little bit more popularity, which I thought it was super, super interesting. 
but the article I found it on yahoo.com and it says mom bloggers book describes a journey back from death and a new hope for treating depression. And I'm going to read some portions of this just because I felt like it was so super interesting. But this woman, she was a professional blogger and pretty successful at what she did, but, um, suffered from pretty severe depression throughout her whole life. And she signed up for some treatment, um, a first round of a clinical trial that used the powerful anesthetic propofol. This is the drug you might recognize the name that killed Michael Jackson um, when it was overdosed with it. But they use it now for colonoscopies. What? Um, It's the drug most commonly used for that um, to kind of anesthetize. Ugh, can't speak to numb people for the colonoscopy, okay. but they are using it in high doses that cause brain activity to cease as a treatment for profound and resistant depression. So, so this woman, brain death? pretty much it kills your brain off and then they bring you back to life. How's that a good thing? Well, let's just look a little bit further into this, but this woman basically, was a blogger and a mom and suffered from pretty severe depression. Um, she had two daughters, but she started suffering from depression in high school and it worsened in college to the point where she announced she was going to drop out. She did try antidepressant medications and recovered and did okay through the years that allowed her to kind of work on her career, get married, start a blog, have some kids um, but then after a while it started to catch back up and the medication became less and less effective. Um, she stopped taking it when she became pregnant and assumed that everything was going to be okay. But after the baby was born, she had really severe postpartum depression and a very, very difficult time coming back from that. So they put her back on the medication and she stayed on that for about 10 years um, until it stopped being effective, which can happen with people with severe depression. The medication can be effective, but over time can lose its effectiveness. Yeah, I've so heard of that too. Evidently, she started suffering more and more and the, she had a very severe bout of depression, which began in about 2015 and she felt like it was very, very different And by then she had gone through a divorce and was a single parent um, and she had just gotten, she felt like her life was kind of spiraling out of control. Um, She says that she sometimes would suffer from very, very severe anxiety attacks, which I don't know if you've ever experienced one of those. I have had awful ones and this sounded like something I have experienced, but she said she would wake up every morning, shoot straight up and gasp for breath as anxiety set fire to every molecule of my body. I woke up soaking in a vat of acid that my flesh was covered in flames. The thought of what I needed to get done and what I hadn't gotten done and every potential thing that would ever need to be done screamed in my ears. Voices all taking over, all talking over each other in angry, disappointed tones, all echoing and thundering and crashing into cymbals. The low whisper became a roar that the world would be so much better off without me. Yeah. I never experienced that last part, but I did like wake up sometimes with that severe feeling of anxiety where I thought I was dying and I was just yeah, gasp for yeah. breath. I felt I, like my heart was my, stopping. Yeah. 
my heart is always wake up and my heart feels like it's beating really fast. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack. I'm yeah. Die. Yep. Holy and it's just shit. like that sense of dread that comes over you and wakes you out of a completely yes. dead sleep. So, yes. It's and such they a scary say that feeling. that can be related to depression, but she would sit in her closet and call her mom and just be like, she said she never was like suicidal. She didn't have a plan or want to actively try to kill herself, but she just felt so sad and so hopeless that she would. Yeah. I never wanted to die. I just felt scared. Like I was going to die, you know? And the the fear of failing at what she was doing was like a, a huge, huge thing. And she Mm -hmm. says that she remembers one particular instance where she literally crawled across the floor to reach for the phone and call her mom saying, you know, please come because I I don't know what's happening. I'm really, really scared. They drove to meet her. And the next morning she went to see a psycho, uh, her psychiatrist that she hadn't seen in a while. Um, And they diagnosed Mm -hmm. her with drug resistant depression at that point. So... Someone who has drug resistant someone with drug resistant depression. Just for the listeners out there that don't know what that is, it's an official diagnosis, and it's usually when patients don't respond to two different medications after being on each for four to six weeks at least. Oh, that sounds like me. <gasps> About one third of all um, cases of depression in the U.S. are treatment resistant. So. Some of these patients use that electroconvulsive therapy that you spoke about earlier. Um, and this basically is electric currents that are passed through the brain while the patient is under general anesthesia. This triggers a brief seizure, changes the brain chemistry. Success rate for ECT therapy is about 75% at reversing those depressive symptoms. Yep. However, a lot of patients choose not to get it because it has a really negative reputation and people are scared of it, I think. Well, it sounds scary. I mean, just talking about it, I mean, that sounds scary. I, I personally wouldn't want to do it if I had, if, I mean, that would be like worst case scenario. Yeah. Well, I mean, the side effects that they tell you about with it include attention deficit, memory loss, and migraines. So like people are scared they're going to be stuck with that stuff. So I think that that's a really kind of a frightening thing to, to worry about. Um, and then some people use ketamine nasal spray. This is only to be used with a certified doctor's office or clinic. And it has really close monitoring because it can cause hallucinogenic side effects like we talked about earlier. Um, but propofol was first introduced as an anesthetic, and it quickly wears off, making it a go-to for procedures like colonoscopies. But propofol, when properly monitored by an anesthesiologist, um, is considered safe and an effective medication. Um, And some doctors are now using it in these trial studies to help deal with these folks that have been um, diagnosed as having depressive disorder that is resistant to medication. So... This particular woman that wrote this article was offered this small open label trial as the first step um, in getting into this particular type of treatment. The goal was first to determine whether it was tolerable and effective effective enough to warrant a full clinical trial. But this woman signed up for it and said, okay, let's do it because 
she wanted so badly to be better. And this was like the hope of this study gave her the first kind of glimmer of hope that she'd had in a really long time. So technically, you know, she kind of spoke about dying during the treatment. So you're not technically dying during this treatment. Burst suppression is not brain death. And that's what it's called, burst suppression. Um, but in many ways, it's like death and rebirth is how she described it. Um, so she was the third patient in this trial, one of six who responded well, and one of five who was still better six months after the treatment. So she wasn't sure that it was actually working during the, the treatment itself. So they'll give them the drug and kind of induce these um, sort of um, burst suppressions and, and death in her brain and then bring you back. But um, she had them. You can't eat for 24 hours at a time. And you have the treatments three days a week for nearly a month. So basically it makes you super, super exhausted at first. And she said she felt like she was swimming through peanut butter all the time. Oh my God. Then one day she realized she was getting better. She said after the fifth treatment, she didn't feel groggy as she had the other time she had the treatment. The next day she showered and put on makeup and wore clean clothes and felt like she was really like starting to be a normal person again. So this particular treatment really, like, she found it super effective and it ended up working for her. But she says nearly a year later after the treatments, after the treatments had worked, she's good to go. So, again, we need to emphasize that this was a trial study that she was a part of. It may not be something that you have access to if you try to go out and see your doctor and get treatment for this. But it doesn't hurt to ask. And hopefully, you know, if it's continuing to show a promise um, for other people, it will eventually become more popular and more widespread. So they say that it can trigger rapid, durable antidepressant effects similar to electroconvulsive therapy, but with fewer side effects. You know what that was made me think of? Flatliners. Yeah, basically. But it she found a treatment because I think what it essentially what it's doing is, is just rewiring your brain. That's, that's what the electroconvulsive therapy does as well. It just rewires your brain to think in a different sort of way, which is so very interesting to me. But besides just the ketamine and the electroconvulsive therapy and the propofol, some people find a more simple approach such as diet and exercise can actually be very, very effective as well. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your own personal experience with how you have been dealing with your depression and anxiety? For me personally, um, medications didn't really help me. So I had to find other ways to deal with mine. And I felt, um, I started doing these, uh, I did like the tough mutter, and, uh, I did a half marathon and doing like these extreme things kind of made me feel like, first of all, I faced my fears and, you know, when you put yourself in uncomfortable situations, like the scary, uncomfortable, the day-to-day stuff that feels scary or uncomfortable doesn't seem as scary and uncomfortable when you <laughs> go through those things. Um, but I exercise a lot and it makes me feel so much better. And also diet has helped me 
um, changing my diet because certain foods would, uh, eating too much sugar would trigger. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and caffeine would trigger. And yeah. And caffeine would trigger anxiety attacks, uh, heart rate, my heart rate would speed up. I found that Just like an electrolyte imbalance would do it for me as well. Like if mm-hmm. I was dehydrated or like not, not getting enough salt. Yep. I found that a excessive amount of sugar in my system would make me feel, um, like I was not attached to my body. I was having like these, I was experiencing where like, it was almost like an outer body experience. It was like, felt like I was floating and like, I couldn't control my thoughts. It was really kind of a scary feeling. I don't know about you, but my, I've kind of had periodic bouts of like very minor depression, nothing like very severe, but I have had anxiety and I have not had it bad for the last five or six years, but I do remember when I first started getting it, my very, very first time I ever got it, it just scared the living daylights out of me. And I remember at the time I was so unhealthy. I was probably 30 pounds lighter than I am right now. I was eating like nothing, living on caffeine and like nuts and like apples and yogurt and like half a lean cuisine was like my meal for the day. I was probably having 800 calories a day, if that. And I literally remember sitting at my desk at work and I had just drank a chai tea, which is a shit ton of sugar and a shit ton of caffeine. Oh, worst thing you could do. The only thing I'd had to eat that day was like five almonds. For those of the listeners who don't know me, I'm about five nine, and at the time I weighed about 130 pounds. At present, I weigh about 170 pounds. So I was about 40 pounds lighter than I am right now. And I was like compulsively exercising. I was running every day. I was lifting weights, and I was playing volleyball probably five days a week for two to four hours a day. I was sitting at my desk and I had just finished a chai tea and I felt like this kind of like fluttery feeling in my chest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just felt lightheaded, like I was going to pass out. And I kind of ignored yep. it and like just sort of took a deep breath and sat back down. And then I got into my car and drove home at the end of the day. It, I had the weirdest sensation. I was about halfway home and I felt like I was going to pass out. Mm-hmm. And I had to stop. I stopped at a gas station and I got out of the car and for some reason I knew in my brain that I had to ha- I had to get some sh- some kind of sugar, juice and like something to eat. I knew I had to get it immediately or I was going to lose consciousness. And so I walked mm-hmm. in and I was like, I didn't feel like I felt disconnected with my body. I walked into this store. I think it was like an AMPM or something like that. And I put my card down on the counter and I looked at the guy and I couldn't form a sentence. And I was like, Mm-mm. just give me something. I need something. And he like, I think he kind of saw what was going on. And I was like, I can't, I just, I couldn't speak. I couldn't enunciate what I needed and he put like a bag of pretzels on the counter and some orange juice and I mm-hmm. I gave him my card and I said you know please take care of this and he ran my card for me and handed me the stuff and I took a bite of it and felt like a little bit of relief but I still felt like really fluttery and like disconnected from my body and yep. it took about 45 minutes 
after that for me to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to pass out again. But that would happen periodically where I would just have to sit down and drink some juice and just like, I, I would always like wake, either wake up from a deep sleep with my heart racing, feeling like I was dying or like I was going to pass out. Those two things so were like interchangeable. I can tell you personally, because I had gestational diabetes while I was pregnant with Jack. And when I experienced that was blood sugar drops. But uh, it, I went into the doctor and did a bunch of blood work and testing and everything came back normal. Yes. I've had several tests where uh, they've done glucose tests on me and have, and they've all come out normal. So it was just, but I do struggle. Crazy. I do have now that I have a blood sugar monitor, those moments where I have like, where I feel like I'm going to pass out is always because my blood sugar has dropped. And then you got to get the uh, healthy protein. The best thing is peanut butter because it's got the sugar and the protein in it. Yeah, I have and not had. I have not had an incident like that in a long time. Thank God. I do have periodic bouts where I will like wake up kind of with that panicky feeling, or I'll have a, a panicky feeling, like where I feel like I'm gonna die. But yeah. It is so much less than it was when I had back then. Like I'd say it's probably one tenth of the degree that it was back then. But one thing that I found effective in addition to just monitoring my diet, watching my blood sugar, cutting out sugar and caffeine was GABA tablets. I got some GABA tablets from like Whole Foods. Body naturally produces GABA in your brain. So I would, I got some of the sublingual GABA tablets and Every time I would start to feel panicky, I would just put one or two of them under my tongue and usually it would go away within 45 minutes to an hour. You really do got to watch your your diet, your food intake, the chemicals that you're putting into your body because they can really, really dramatically impact with depression and anxiety, unfortunately. That's so true. That's very true. But it sounds like you have gained a pretty good level of relief as well, just with diet and exercise. Yeah. Now that's not going to work for everybody. Everybody's no. body chemistry is different. They have different things. So if one thing doesn't work for you, try something else and definitely seek out a help from a doctor or a medical professional. Yeah, absolutely. This is the point where we say goodbye for now. So long farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please, please, please send us an email. Um, we love to hear emails from you folks. Uh, we're going to put the email address in the show notes. It's hypoelmopodcast at gmail.com or hypochondriacsalmanac at gmail.com. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments, as well as more common medical conditions, news, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.